So I'm sitting there listening intently to my client. I'm a young therapist at the beginning of my career, and I'm trying really hard to be a good therapist, you know. And I'm loving being a therapist. I love helping people, and I love seeing results. And I also love the way each session is like a puzzle or like a maze or, I don't know, a fascinating walk in the woods with someone down a trail, a, a nice, pleasant trail, fraught with all sorts of you know twists and turns and with discovery and with, with love and with pain but ultimately with growth. <laughs> How about that for a metaphor? So I'm listening to my client and I feel like I'm doing really well. I'm being empathic. I'm attentive. She's telling me about her emotional experience. Everything is going according to plan. And then she says, and that's why you're a terrible therapist. And then she really lays into me. She's super angry at me. She's not happy with me. And she knows exactly what to say to hurt my feelings. She's insulting me. She's telling me that I'm too young. I'm too this. I'm too that. I'm a terrible listener. I haven't listened to her at all. Everything I've done up until that point has been wrong. And my breath is taken away, and I start to panic. And I'm thinking, what? I'm a terrible therapist? Wait, I thought I was doing a good job. She accuses me of not knowing what, I, what I'm doing and of not really listening to her and of being a man who could never understand her. I'm devastated, and I'm terrified, and I suspect she's right. I'm a terrible therapist. She's right about that. In this episode, I will provide a self-analysis of my counter-transference during that moment. This is a common psychodynamic practice to self-analyze. I will discuss what happened, my emotional reaction, what I did in the moment, my analysis of myself, my self-analysis, my analysis of my client, my plan for future sessions, and the eventual outcome. Hello and welcome. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your loyal host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a practicing psychotherapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. Okay, so now we are in the patron zone. Hello, patrons. Love you so much. Just love you. You guys are great. When I started this adventure and I started the Patreon page and this pledge drive, I was like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe no one will do this. <laughs> and every day there's been a few of you that have done it, and it's great. Um, so you guys are rad, and this is my first gift to you. All right, so self-analysis of countertransference. Why perform self-analysis? Well, as Karen Horney, or as I sometimes mispronounce, Karen Horney, puts in her seminal book titled Self-Analysis, which was published in 1942, uh, before reading this quote by Karen Horney, understand that many writers back then referred to therapists as being male. So instead of writing him or her, they just wrote him. It's sort of weird, but common back then. All right, so here's the quote. Attempts at constructive self-analysis can be important for the individual himself, the therapist. Such an endeavor gives him a chance of self-realization, the development of special gifts, but also more important, the development of his potentialities as a strong and integrated human being free from crippling compulsions. End of quote. I love this quote because she's saying, as far as I can tell, 
that, you know, sure, self-analysis can help you become a better therapist, but more important, it can help you be a happier person. This is why I like Karen Horney's writing. It's so down to earth and so, I don't know, contemporary. But what is psychodynamic self-analysis? Well, there are many writers in the psychodynamic world who have provided guidance on what self-analysis is. There's literally thousands and thousands. There's literally thousands and thousands of literature, literal literature. There are many definitions, but the following is the way I do it. So the first thing, and I'll just, let me just go over the different steps. The first thing I do is assess the moment. The second thing I do is I assess my emotional reaction. The third thing I do is assess what I did in the moment, my behavior. The fourth thing I did is I provide a self-analysis, and this is really where the meat of it is, the, the primary analysis of the self. The fifth thing I do is I analyze the client. And the sixth thing I do is my plan for subsequent sessions. And the last thing I do is I monitor outcome and adjust accordingly. Before moving forward, I just want to say that as always, whenever I provide client material on the podcast or when I'm lecturing, that I follow the ethical guidelines regarding such practices by hiding the identity of the client, by changing details so that even the client won't recognize that I'm talking about them. Uh, client confidentiality is something I take very seriously, and I would never out a client. I'm either being so general that the client will think, well, I guess that could be me, but it's also extremely general. Or if it's specific, I'll change things about it so that it masks the client identity. Okay, so the first thing, assess the moment. First, we must try to assess the moment. We must try to figure out what are the facts, what happened. So put simply, a client said, I was, ter I was a terrible therapist and was angry at me for letting her down. And I was surprised by this since I thought she really liked me and I thought she really liked my style of providing therapy. So that's the end of the first step. It's pretty simple. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just a description of what happened. But unless we provide this, we don't really have a foundation upon which to stand moving forward. And I find that a lot of novice therapists in particular will skip a lot of these initial steps. So we just have to define that. A, a client told me I was a terrible therapist and I was surprised and caught off guard. And I had a definite emotional reaction. Okay, so step two, what was my emotional reaction? Another word for emotional reaction is countertransference. And even though countertransference as a term has its origins in classical psychoanalysis, so just going into a little bit of the history of the term countertransference, even though countertransference as a term has its origins in classical psychoanalysis, you know, going back to Freud, Therapist's feelings, or countertransference, are considered by many as an important element of therapy to be studied, discussed, and managed, regardless of theoretical orientation and regardless of the term used to denote it. So regardless, so sometimes people use different terms other than countertransference, but, but most therapists understand that it's important to assess you know, therapist reactions. Even those in cognitive therapy, once mortal enemies of psychoanalysis, are paying attention to countertransference reactions and modifying the term to fit within their framework. That is, countertransference. So, to you know, cognitive therapists, they will refer to the automatic thoughts and schemas 
activated by the client in the therapist. So they might not use the word countertransference, but they might. But uh, they'll they'll frame it within their own theoretical framework, which is you know, automatic thoughts and schemas. There have been thousands of papers and books and, and seminal works that have been published on the subject of therapist emotion, for which authors have various terms, in, including for which auth- and 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 authors have used various terms to refer to th- therapist emotion or therapist reactions, including countertransference. There's also therapist subjectivity or self of the therapist and role responsiveness. There's also co-transference. There's various different terms. And there's a ton of research showing that countertransference training, countertransference awareness, and a countertransference management are critical for effective treatment and for self-care. Incidentally, countertransference and its management have been emphasized among psychodynamic therapists since Freud, but it became particularly pop- popular in the 1950s when there was a wave of new writing and new thought regarding countertransference, and psychoanalysts began accepting that countertransference was normal and ubiquitous rather than pathological and an, in- and an indication of incompetence. That movement was extremely influential in the psychoanalytic world and in the psychotherapy world, but it wasn't influential enough since today, in my experience, and according to some research, most therapists still pathologize their countertransference and still avoid it. Uh, there, there are plenty of therapists that are trained and are insufficiently trained regarding how to manage and uh, monitor their own countertransference. So the second step is to assess my emotional. So again, the first step was to assess the moment, which we did. We just described the moment. And the second step is to uh, describe my emotional reaction, to assess my countertransference. And to guide that, I have the following questions. And again, I notice a lot of therapists will skip this step. You know, I'll say, what's your countertransference? And, and they'll go right to the analysis of the client, you know, without really slowing down and saying, okay, what, what, did, what was happening in my body? What was happening for me, for me emotionally? So I, I ask myself the following questions when I am in this step. I say, what, what emotions did I feel in the moment? What urges did I have? And how did I feel in my body? If you remember my episode on difficult clinical moments, I felt all of those feelings that are typical to therapists experiencing difficult clinical moments. I felt a lot of sensations of fear, such as feeling like a deer in headlights. I felt an adrenaline rush. My heart was was racing. I felt panicked, anxiety, tension in my chest, palms sweating. You know, I, I had all those uh, sensations physically and mentally, so to speak, of fear. The second emotion I felt was confusion. I felt very confused and I didn't know what to do. In my body, I felt lightheaded and foggy in my brain. The third emotion I felt, in addition to fear and confusion, is inadequacy. I felt incapable and incompetent. I thought, if I were a better therapist, she wouldn't be so upset with me. And the inadequacy manifested in my body as a sudden cold sweat. Whenever I feel ashamed of myself and inadequate, I, I, I get a, a cold sweat that suddenly emerges, you know. Um, maybe you know what I'm talking about. 
So in addition to feeling fear, confusion, inadequacy, slash shame, I also felt angry at her. Angry for making me feel that way. And my anger manifested in my, fe- in my face. I felt, I felt my face getting flushed. The adrenaline rush also had to do some, somewhat with that anger. I also felt an urge to terminate with her. I thought, well, there's the door. If I'm such a bad therapist, then you can leave and never come back. Good riddance, right? I also hoped she would terminate so I wouldn't have to endure this again. I sort of had an urge to run out of the room to escape the situation. And finally, in addition to feeling fear, confusion, inadequacy, anger, and an urge to terminate, I felt an urge to hide my feelings. I was ashamed of my feelings. And I thought my feelings would ruin the relationship, and then I'd really be a bad therapist, you know? If I showed her my true feelings, then she'd really say I was a terrible therapist. Okay, so let's move on to step three. So step one, assess the moment. Step two, what was my emotional reaction or my countertransference? Step three, how did I react? What did I do in the moment? For the most part, I just hung on for dear life. I tried to hide my various feelings. I tried to listen and be compassionate, but I'm sure I was not doing that very well given my emotional state. From my memory, I bumbled and I stammered as I tried to be diplomatic and a good therapist. I'm sure it wasn't very pretty, and I'm sure she noticed my distress. So that's also important to note. The third step, what did I do in the moment? All right, the fourth step. This is the the meat of the self-analysis, and this step I also call self-analysis. I know that's a bad model to have in terms of, you know, to what's your fourth step of self-analysis? My fourth step of self-analysis is self-analysis. <laughs> um, but anyway, maybe I'll name it something else, but uh, here we go. So this step precedes analysis of the client. And again, I find a lot of therapists not doing it in this order, and I think that it's not a sound model of self-analysis, particularly of countertransference. You need to assess your self and your own issues prior to assessing someone else's because your issues will bias your analysis of other people. So you need to understand as best as you can your own issues and your own biases first. You'll never really understand them, but some contemplation will provide some insight. So I need to answer questions like, why did I feel that way in the moment? What issues of mine were touched upon? What inner conflicts were triggered by that moment? And what defenses did I employ to protect the self, myself, from the pain and fear of what was happening? Previous to this difficult session, I had done a lot of work to help me analyze myself. And even though I was in my mid-20s, I took countertransference very seriously partly because of my training at Antioch University Seattle in the Couple and Family Therapy Program, which emphasizes a lot of countertransference awareness. So in addition to that, my ability to analyze myself was bolstered by lots of therapy. I can't emphasize this enough. Go to therapy, go to therapy, go to therapy, perhaps for the rest of your life. I've gone to therapy off and on my entire adult life. And If you're going to be an effective therapist, this is a a necessary thing, particularly if you're going to work psychodynamically with clients, particularly if you're going to work psychodynamically or relationally with with your clients. So therapy, therapy, therapy. Um, 
Back then, I hadn't been to as much therapy, and I was younger, so my awareness was perhaps not as good as it is now, at least I hope not, because I'd hope I will have grown since then. So that should be noted. And therapy gave me a lot of body awareness, emotional awareness, and family of origin awareness. The next thing in terms of the next thing I did that helped me at the time analyze myself and helps me today is consultation, consultation, consultation. All wise therapists consult. And I know plenty of therapists who isolate themselves and either think they know everything, which is just silly, or they don't feel confident enough to reach out, or they haven't cultivated relationships with other professionals to consult with. But uh, one of the wonderful things about being a professor in a university is that I'm constantly around other professionals and, and obviously around students. And so consultation is just a massive part of my week, and, and I, I love that part of it. Uh, so, so there's that. So that, that also helped me. Another thing is contemplation, contemplation, contemplation. I feel like this word and this concept of contemplation has been lost or was never introduced in the Western world or I don't know. But I find that I don't, I don't hear a lot of people talking about contemplation. I hear a lot of people talking about analyzing or thinking. Or, but contemplation means something different to me. It, you know, it means really thinking for a while <laughs> and really trying to come at a topic from different angles and trying to be open-minded and trying to push past any thinking barriers that you might have or biases. So we have therapy, 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 consultation, 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 and contemplation, contemplation, contemplation. It's kind of a rap song, right? Therapy, 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 consultation, consultation, consultation. No, that's a terrible rap song. What am I talking about? All right. The other thing is that I did to help myself with this step of self-analysis the fourth step within my model of self-analysis is my theoretical knowledge. Uh, at the time, it was not as good as it is now, but I had the basic framework for understanding what I understand today. So the first thing that I do when I am analyzing myself in terms of counter-transference is I have, a various, I have, I have various domains or spectrum spectrums, spectra, spectra, <laughs> various spectra that I will look at and evaluate where the countertransference is on the different spectra or spectrums. Is it spectra or spectrums? I feel like it's spectra, but I feel pretentious saying spectra. All right. So was the countertransference in the moment, was my reaction clear or unclear? Meaning, that was it foggy to me, or does it seem pretty obvious to me? And I would say it was fairly clear. Uh, so there's that. Because a lot of transference can be fairly unclear to me. And that's when it's really dangerous, is when it's unclear. Because you, if you don't know it's even happening, how can you even look at it? The other spectrum I look at is, is it positive, neutral, or negative? And again, as I go over these spectra, spectra, I'm going to look that up on the internet because I'm going to be saying this for a while. It's spectra or spectrums. <laughs> I just found out. You can say spectra or you can say spectrums. So both are good. All right. So on this spectrum uh, and with all, so, so with, so with all these various spectra or spectrums, Understand that there's no objective measure to this. It's all just a guide to contemplation. 
So was my reaction positive, neutral, or negative? Well, I would say it was negative. It did not feel good. It was not a pleasant experience for me. But you can have positive countertransference, like extreme love or extreme compassion or extreme, I don't know, like you want to save somebody or extreme connection with somebody. And that doesn't mean it's bad, but it just means that it's something to look at. And there's also neutral countertransference, which I won't go into. But anyway, the next spectrum is intense versus mild. And I would say it was fairly intense. I'd give it a 7 or 8 out of 10. Very intense. The next spectrum is under, under control versus out of control. I would say it was mostly under control. I have had out of control countertransference before that spins out of control very quickly and becomes quite traumatic and I lose control of myself. And so I, I would say the countertransference, although intense and very negative, was, was mostly under control. Uh, another spectrum is, was it a normal reaction or was it a personal issue? Normal reaction meaning, you know, if a client spits in your face, you know, 99% of therapists are going to consider that an affront. Whereas if a client, if you're going through a divorce and your client starts judging people who are divorced, then it might be considered a personal issue of yours in terms of your sensitivity to divorce judgment. So was it a normal reaction in the moment or a personal reaction to me? I would say it would be both. Any therapist who gets slammed for being a terrible therapist or anybody who does anything, a plumber who gets slammed for being a terrible th- plumber, is going to feel hurt and angry and, and upset. Uh, but it's also a personal issue of mine to worry about my inadequacy and in these kinds of things, particularly back then. Because of my issues, I want to appear like I know what I'm doing, and I worry quite a bit about uh, coming across like I don't know what I'm doing. It's, it's a personal issue of mine that a lot of people share with me, but a lot of people do not share that with me. Another spectrum, was it useful or neutral or destructive? And I would say it, would, it was both useful and destructive. It was destructive in that it was harmful to me, and potentially harmful to our therapeutic relationship. But it was also useful in that it, it, it could have been and, and eventually, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll see, used for the betterment of our relationship and of the therapy. But I'll get more into that later. Another spectrum is, is the countertransference that I was feeling, was it informative or was it irrelevant? And I would say it was very informative. You know, some countertransference you experience is just like, oh, you know, I just had this feeling and it really doesn't have to do with anything regarding the therapy or the relationship or the client. It's just this reaction that I'm having and it's nothing really too much to analyze. I don't have to, I don't have to go in deep on this because it's not really going to help the treatment or me. But I would say, as we'll get into later, that it was extremely informative in terms of the issues in our relationship and the issues in the client. Another spectrum is, is, was it internal or was it expressed? And I would say my countertransference reaction was mostly internal, at least I think so. I, I don't think I let on about it. I think I, fa- I stayed fairly stoic and, and diplomatic, although I don't know if that was the right thing to do at the time, but I think it was mostly internal. 
Another spectrum is, was my countertransference detected by the therapist, me, or was it undetected? This is similar to the clear versus unclear. It was very detected by me. I, I very much detected this, as far as I could tell. Uh, and the last spectrum among the various spectrums and spectra is, is the countertransference reaction that I had detected by the client or not detected? And I'm not entirely sure, but it was seemingly not detected by the, by the client. But I'm sure the client picked up on something. All right, so those are the various spectrum or spectra spectrums that I will think of, think about, and contemplate when I am beginning to try to understand my, my reaction. The next thing I like to do is analyze the cultural components of my countertransference or the cultural countertransference that I was experiencing. And since we were different genders, that's the main cultural component to look at. So mainly the, the way that I like to do this, since it's so confusing and so difficult to have any answers, is I ask a lot of questions. I, I tell my students this. I say, when you're writing papers for me, feel free to just ask questions without providing any answers because there's a tremendous amount of wisdom in just asking a question rather than having to come up with answers. Having the question in your mind can provide you a tremendous amount of guidance. And I know that sounds extremely squishy. And to you concrete people out there, you're not going to like that. But I find it to be liberating and, and, and um, useful to, to do what I'm about to do. So I'm going to ask a bunch of questions, but I'm not going to provide really any answers. So, or at least any firm answers. So the first question regarding cultural countertransference I like to ask myself regarding a situation like this is, how is gender affecting this situation? You know, it's pretty, pretty general. Am I misunderstanding something because of our gender identity difference? Am I misunderstanding something about the situation because I'm a, I was, I'm a man socialized as a man and she's a woman socialized as a woman? And I would say that her and I were fairly mainstream in terms of our socializations regarding gender. You know, am I misunderstanding her? When she says that I'm a terrible therapist and I'm not listening to her, am I, am I misinterpreting that based on her gender? Or did I make a complete mistake by, by not being a good therapist for her because of the gender difference? You know, it's a, it's a worthy question. Have I been manifesting some aspect of my male privilege which led to her feeling uncared about? This is an important question to ask. Whenever you come from a privileged class or group, it's always important to ask this question. Am I manifesting some aspect of my privilege? Now, this for some people it produces tremendous anxiety because they wonder, well, maybe I am. And that anxiety will lead to denial meaning no i'm not i'm not exhibiting any privilege i don't detect any so it's not happening nothing's happening over here i'm fine i see i hear a lot of novice therapists saying this and there's literally no way to know the answer to this question when i ask myself am i manifesting some aspect of my male privilege which is harming the client i have no way of knowing the the true answer to that question her and i can have a long talk about that but it's impossible to know. And in all likelihood, I am, because I am privileged as a male. And she is disadvantaged as a female. And so 
you know, we've been socialized to devalue women and to value men in general. And uh, I would say that we probably both were socialized that way. You know, there, there's any reason to believe that we weren't. And that likely plays into how I see her and how she sees me. So now what, what some people will say is, well, well, then what? You know, we're just supposed to only treat uh, people of the same gender? And I say no. There's no way to have a perfect one-to-one relationship regarding privilege. I mean, just the fact that you're a therapist means you have privilege. So there's nothing wrong with privilege. The society has given you privilege if you have privilege. You didn't take it necessarily. It's just given to you, and it's just a part of our context, and it's and it's nothing to be afraid of. It just is what it is. And if we look at it and ask questions and, and wonder then we can do our best to do the best job for our clients. So that's what I have to say about that. Another cultural counter-transference question, has her experience of gender affected her transference towards me? We'll get into more of that later. Also, has my experience of gender affected my counter-transference? You know, off the top of my head, I've been socialized as a male to believe that I know everything and can do everything and... Also, that I need to be very competent. Men have been socialized to not accept failure or being wrong or being not good at something. Men have been socialized to compete and to always be the best or at least be good at everything that they do. And so when men are challenged and told that they are screwing up or doing something wrong, then it perhaps is a more challenging statement to their ego than it is for traditionally socialized women. So those are the things I like to think about in addition to other sorts of questions regarding cultural transference. All right, the next thing that I do, the last step of self-analysis that I will, will embark upon <laughs> is to analyze my defenses. What defenses did I use to protect myself, to protect my psyche from the pain and anxiety that was occurring in the moment, the discomfort? Well, one defense that I employed was primitive withdrawal or withdrawal. In response to the threat and the stress, I withdrew into my mind. I tried to distance myself from the situation, even though I couldn't physically leave the situation. I remember in my mind, it's, it's not full-on dissociation because I, I don't have the capability for that defense, but it, it's a withdrawal from the situation like, okay, I am distancing myself from you. I also employed the defense of projective identification and questions, and I'll get more into projective identification later when I analyze the client, but, but questions that I have to ask myself are, have I socialized her to be angry at me in some way? Am I externalizing some internal conflict that was internalized from a previous relationship? Have I externalized that internal conflict into the therapeutic relationship? And am I now socializing her to criticize me? That's a question that I have to ask myself because I have my own internal issues that I carry with me all the time. And when I work with clients and I am experiencing some form of stress or difficulty or something, I might start externalizing this internal issue of mine, particularly back then because I was younger and perhaps not as integrated, as they say, or differentiated. 
along these lines had I created a pastor relationship? So that's a major question. Another, de- another defense that I used at the time was intellectualization. This is a common defense of mine. I immediately distanced myself from her and the situation by trying to suppress my feelings and focusing on the intellectual aspects of the situation. I tried to deny my feelings because they were overwhelming to me. And I tried to become very intellectual and, and thinky in the moment. Another defense I used in the moment was rationalization. Due to the stress of the situation, I rationalized my failure as a therapist by blaming her. I told myself that she was crazy and ridiculous and that it surely cannot be because of something that I did or some sort of inadequacy that I have. So these are the defenses that I used, and they're mine. They're, they're, they're not hers. I cannot blame her for these defenses. If I blame her for my defenses, that's just another defense. I need to accept, and it's okay to accept that I'm flawed, that I have issues, and that I employ defenses, particularly in difficult moments. I mean, that was a very difficult moment for me, and I think it's reasonable for anyone to be stressed out and to use defense mechanisms to protect themselves. Now, later on, the key is is once you've calmed down and you can relax and consult and you know have a cup of tea, you can reflect and say, okay, what happened in that moment? And that's what happened. I withdrew. I, I possibly was recreating some issue of mine from my past. I definitely was intellectualizing, and I was rationalizing. I was blaming her. All right, so that is the end of the self-analysis portion of the self-analysis fourth phase. So again, we have assess the moment, what, what was my countertransference or my, re, my, my emotional reaction. Number three, how did I react to the moment? Number four, what's my analysis of my own psyche, my self-analysis? Number five, number five, what's the analysis of the client? And again, the ability to, to analyze a client is, again, bolstered by a lot of reading, a lot of talking with other clinicians, a lot of thinking, a lot of contemplating, and a lot of experiencing. But before I go into my analysis of the client, I just want to provide the following caveat regarding postmodernism and cultural relativism and this sort of thing, social constructionism, all these things. Within this field of philosophy and understanding and contemplation, I have to ask myself all the time, what do I know? I don't know anything, really. I cannot be objective. Everything I think is subjective and biased, so to speak. But I can always strive to understand through tentative contemplation and through discourse with other people, I can strive to to understand something. So even though I totally adhere to postmodernism and the the, the philosophy that we're all coming uh, from a particular place in our culture, hermeneutics, this, this sort of stuff. Um, even though I totally understand that, I think that we shouldn't be paralyzed and we shouldn't just completely give up on the endeavor. Uh, I think you can, you can acknowledge postmodernism and acknowledge your idiocy and acknowledge your bias while also just striving to understand other people. I think that that's fine. Some people who dive completely into the postmodern waters will emerge and say, I can never interpret anything. And that's great, and I get it, but it's just not my style. So along these lines, 
there's a term called co-transference that I referred to earlier. And, you know, counter-transference means you're against or you're opposing the client's transference. Whereas the word co-transference better acknowledges our participation with the patient in the intersubjective field. So instead of saying, you know, clients have transference and therapists have counter-transference, meaning that it derives first from the, th- from the client's pathology and the, and the therapist reacts to the client's pathology, so it's counter-transference. There's another term called co-transference, which was introduced by Orange, someone by the last name of Orange in 94, to acknowledge that therapist and client both transfer to each other and they're both equal and on the same playing field. I like the word co-transference. It'll never catch on. It's been 21 years since it was introduced, and uh, still no one's ever heard of it before except for me. So, um, But um, such is life. Um, okay, so let's analyze her transference. In general today, transference is concisely defined as the displacement of patterns of feelings, thoughts, and behaviors originally experienced in relation to significant figures during childhood onto a person involved in a current interpersonal relationship. It's a very general description. Transference usually refers to the transferring of one's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors towards one's parents onto the therapist. So again, before going into her transference, I just want to remind the listener that I follow the ethical practice of masking client identities by changing details about certain things so that client confidentiality is upheld. Okay, so going into her counter, going into her transference, although her family was seemingly normal and healthy, she was seriously neglected and abused as a child. She was particularly neglected emotionally. Although she was abused, her her main theme that we kept coming back to in her therapy was the emotional neglect she experienced in her family as a child. And she was transferring her neglectful parents and family onto me in that moment. So in that moment, something triggered her. I don't know what it was. I didn't know what it was at the time, but something triggered her about our interaction. And she felt that pain that she experienced as a child. And instead of reflecting on it, she utilized the defense of transference and displaced it onto me because what she really wanted to do was to go back home and talk to her parents and yell at them and tell them that they had neglected her and tell them that they weren't listening to her and tell them that they were bad parents. But instead, because she didn't feel that she could do that because they're neglectful parents she decided to displace those feelings onto me because she knew that I was a safe person upon which she could transfer those feelings, which is a main reason why transference exists in therapy to begin with is because as the relationship deepens, clients will realize that you're a safe person, which is a good thing. But it can also be a bad, not a bad thing, but it can also be a difficult thing, I I will say, a difficult opportunity, if you will, in that the client now trusts you enough to dump a lot of their, if not all, of their issues from their parents onto you. And the they see you as the neglecting, abusive person 
that they experienced as children. Because if you think about it, even if I was a little off that day, I don't think I deserved to be ridiculed and, and terrified, right? I mean, I could see a, a client saying, well, you seem a little off today, and that kind of bothers me. Or, hey, I'm paying money for this. It seems like you're not paying attention to me. Or, are you paying attention? Because it kind of seems like maybe you're not paying attention. You know, those kinds of questions are welcomed and, and fine. Uh, and, and when a client is so angry and so hurt, when I, it appears to me that I was being extremely attentive and doing my job, I thought, at the very least, minimally adequately. (laughs) And so when you're in a situation like that where the situation doesn't match the reaction from the client, then you have to start wondering if it's transference and totally stood to reason. Because of her internalized issues, she was transferring those issues onto me. And that's when therapy really begins for psychodynamic and interpersonal therapists. We can't work with clients who are intellectualizing all the time. We need them to be real, and we need them to start involving us in their relational world. And what that means is they're going to start transferring onto you. So another defense that she used was projective identification. And let me explain what projective identification is, even though I've explained it before in previous podcasts. A major tenet of psychodynamic therapy and object relations is the assumption that internal relational representations are formed throughout one's life and significant relationships with parents particularly and interactions are internalized and become semi-permanent components of the personality. The more powerful and the more frequent the experience, the stronger the representation comes. So things like when your parents care for you, when your parents feed you, when they change your diaper, when they hug you, when they kiss you goodnight, these are all things that you've experienced and you internalize those. You also experience times when you're crying and no one comes to you, or when you feel terrified, you reach out for help and no one notices, or when you're criticized, or when you're abandoned, or when you're hurt or abused. These interactions are also internalized and become fixed parts of your personality. These dyadic relationships between you and the other become internalized and later become externalized. So these internalized dyadic representations can be considered enduring configurations in the mind. For example, just to get really specific, the following elements are internalized as a whole when a mother smiles warmly at an infant. So, number one, the infant perceives the mother's smiling face. Number two, the infant interprets her to be happy and accepting and loving. Number three, the infant notices he has an impulse to reach out and smile back. Number four, the infant perceives a feeling of safety and happiness. And number five, the infant notices he is holding a particular toy. So the baby internalizes these elements as a whole construct. And if this is repeated over time, this becomes a fixed internal relationship representation in their mind. This this interaction becomes internalized and becomes a part of their personality. And it gets quite complicated, but uh, work with me here because it'll eventually come back to projective identification. And these internal 
relationship representations, these introjects is another word for them that sometimes people will use. They become reenacted in adult life, perhaps in a vain attempt to rework the difficult, conflictual construct that you internalize as a child, or to create a familiar, comfortable interaction. Because even though it was destructive as a child, like, like for instance, with this client, she felt abandoned. She, she was abandoned as a child repeatedly and significantly by her parents. Emotionally, she was abandoned. And so she internalized that repeatedly over time, and that became a fixed part of her psyche, the, an abandoned self and an abandoning other. And she might have recreated this internal construct by externalizing it onto her and me. She externalized it in a vain attempt to try to rework the construct. It might have been a vain attempt or it might have been not. We'll get into that more, more later. But anyway, uh, she might have externalized this representation to create a familiar, comfortable interaction. You know, as, as we became closer in the therapeutic relationship, it was very familiar for her to be abandoned by people close to her. And so she recreated that abandonment so that she would get comfort. And it sounds weird that people would turn to difficulty to provide comfort to them, but it happens all the time. I mean, all you have to do is think about people who grow up in abusive households and then later on marry an abusive spouse. Why would they do that? Well, partially the idea is it's because it's comfortable, it's familiar. Love means being abused sometimes. That's what love is. And so that's perhaps why she was recreating through projective identification this situation. Uh, she might have been recreating this, this internalized conflict to defensively make the internal ex external. Because through projective identification, by recreating these past internalized issues, you're basically enacting a fantasy that it no longer exists in you. When you have an internal conflict, and in her she had an internal conflict of, you're a bad person, you are worthy of being abandoned. And then another person and another side of the dyad uh, saying, why are you abandoning me? This really hurts. And so when the psyche has a warring, a conflictual internal dyad on the inside, it doesn't like it. It doesn't want it there. And so it will, through projective identification, make at least half of that equation external. And even though it compels others to feel really bad, it actually makes the self feel less distressed because the fantasy is, is that it no longer exists on the inside and now exists in the external world. And so she was making me out to be the abandoning other, even though that's an internalized part of herself. Another reason why people externalize through projective identification is to distract from the internal strife of the construct. So because this warring and this, this conflictual dyad is going on inside of her, she externalizes it to distract herself from the reality that it's actually on the inside of her. So again, projective identification is the process wherein a, an unconscious childhood conflict is reenacted in a current relationship. This reenacted conflict reflects the meaning and affective experience that was internalized as a child. Thus, the self is able to re-experience the harmed self in relation to the original harming other. 
The other is perceived as embodying the projection and is induced to take on the behavior and feelings that complete the interaction. You know, it's not just projection. Through projective identification, she's trying to socialize me to agree with the projection. She wants me to, she unconsciously wants me to actually abandon her. There's a part of her that is trying to make me abandon her. Well, a very good way to get a therapist to abandon you is to traumatize them in a session. <laughs> you know, she was, in a sense, in one way, and there's various different angles to this, but a part of her was trying to induce me to abandon her, knowing exactly what buttons to push in me and knowing how to make me feel terrible about myself and knowing how to make me feel an urge to terminate with her. That was setting up a situation where I might very well abandon her. At the very least, I'll abandon her emotionally in the moment because I'm trying to protect myself. But at the most, I might actually terminate her as a, as a client. I might say, oh, I don't think this is working out. So, so she's trying to get me through protective identification to agree with the original internalized other, which was her parents. So her parents are abandoning her. She internalizes that part of the dyad between her being abandoned and the other abandoning her. And then later on, through projective identification, she reenacts this by inducing me to abandon her. And the way she was trying to get me to abandon her was by doing what she did to me. And again, the reason why people do this is, is an attempt to try to rework the relationship so they can re-internalize a different experience, and also just because it's, it's comfortable. Okay, so we've talked about transference. We've talked about projective identification. Let's talk about other defenses. And again, just to go a little bit into defenses, psychodynamic therapists are interested in assessing and addressing the particular constellation of defense mechanisms that characterize each client. Within traditional psychoanalytic models, defense mechanisms were viewed as preventing awareness of unconscious sexual and aggressive drives. However, in contemporary psychodynamic thinking, a defense mechanism is employed to preserve a sense of self-esteem in the face of shame and to ensure a sense of safety when one feels abandoned or threatened. All right, so what, are, what were some of her defenses? I've mentioned mine already. What were hers? Well, denial is one of the first uh, defenses I can think of. To defend against the abandonment, she denied the reality of our relationship. So to explain this further, because our relationship was getting deeper and because she was becoming more dependent and more needy of the therapeutic relationship, she needed to defend against the possibility of being abandoned. And so she denied the reality of our relationship, the, which was very caring. I cared a lot about her, and I really wanted her to know that I cared a lot about her and that I had a lot of compassion for her and could see her suffering. And I think I was doing that well. But because she was becoming dependent and becoming more fearful of being hurt by me, she denied the reality of our relationship and switched it around in her head to be not compassionate, but the opposite. Another defense that she employed in, in all likelihood was idealization. To defend against her constant attachment insecure, insecurity due to her childhood uh, abandonment issues, she idealized me as an all-powerful figure 
someone she could abuse without any consequences, like the way children yell at their parents. You know, pe- children don't think of their parents as real people, and that's developmentally appropriate. And that's why children can yell and insult their parents without feeling too bad about themselves because they need to idealize someone else so that they can feel more secure. Children need to believe that their parents are all-powerful to reduce the child's anxiety because children have a lot of anxiety about being in the world. Children have a lot of anxiety about, it's like, the world is a very complicated social place, and children know that they don't know what they're doing in the world. And they need their parents to be extremely competent, or they need to believe their parents are extremely competent, uh, otherwise their anxiety would crush them. And so she was idealizing me in that, in that state. She needed me to be all-powerful and incapable of being hurt. Because a big part of her definitely wanted our relationship to continue, and she wanted therapy to continue. So why would she threaten that relationship by abusing me? Well, she perhaps was idealizing me too much as a defense against the difficulties she was experiencing on the inside, and that led to a foundation upon which she could abuse me and believe that nothing would happen. Another defense mechanism is splitting, common to borderlines. So splitting is a complicated thing, and sometimes it's simply put, but to understand it, you have to understand childhood development and early childhood development. When children are around the age of two, they, uh, in, in general, are starting to experience the urge to be independent. They want to break free. This is the beginning of them saying, I want to do my own thing, and I'm different than, than my parents. Before that stage, they really are undifferentiated for the most part from from their parents. They just they see themselves as basically fused and just a part of their parents' uh, egos. But as they start to age and you know they're 2, 3 years old, they start wanting to become their own person, but they don't have the security to, you know, fully strike out on their own, <laughs> which, you know, makes total sense. So they are extremely naturally so, they're extremely dependent on their parents and their family. They need their their parents and their family to function emotionally. When they suffer, they immediately go to their parents. When When they're not feeling well, they immediately go to their parents. When they're scared, they immediately go to their parents, or at least they should if they're securely attached. But at the same time, they want to break free. They they want to do their own thing. And you'll kind of see this. So you're at the playground or something, and this is a simple, crude example, but just go with me on this. So you have a, you bring a boy to a playground and he's never been there before. And mom's sitting there and, and the boy is, you know, clinging to the mom and the mom's saying, Hey, go play in the playground. It's okay. And the kid's, you know, scared and saying, I don't want to, I want to be here with you. And the mom's like, come on, go play in the playground. Everything's fine. And the kid is looking at the other kids and really wanting to, but being terrified and clinging to the mom. Eventually the boy relaxes and starts to venture out. He doesn't go hog wild, but he, you know, he start he goes, ventures out a little bit. He's looking back at the mom. The mom is smiling and saying, you're doing great. Good job. And he starts to play. Well, then he is fully on his own 
after a while, and he loves it, and he is enjoying the independence, and he doesn't even know where his mom is, and he doesn't care, and he's having fun in the world, and he feels he feels competent, and he's climbing things, and he's you know making faces at other kids, <laughs> and he feels like he's on top of the world. And the mother comes over and says, uh, okay, it's time to go, or okay, you know, tries to do something with the kid. It's time to, I don't know, eat your food or, you know, don't throw rocks to the other kids. The mother is trying to interact somehow with the child. And the child at times will, will turn to the mother with such anger and such mirth, you know. And, you know, when it comes to two-year, two-year-old, three-year-olds, we totally accept that that's how two- and three-year-olds act. You know, no, I don't want to go. You can't make me. And when we see that in children, we just say, well, that's just how children act. And and good parents, secure parents, understanding parents don't take it personally. It's like, well, you know, that's just how, that's how they're all, that's how kids that age are. But if you really think about it, it's a, it's strange human behavior, (laughs) right? Wait, 15 minutes ago, you were clinging to me and I was begging you to like go play because I thought it'd be good for you. And now you don't want to go and you're screaming at me and you think I'm a terrible, terrible human being for dragging you away from this playground. Well, it's a similar process that's happening with some clients in therapy. If you, as a child, were neglected or abused or something, you might become fixated in that stage of development. You might have developmental phase residue, as I like to call it, from from that phase. And when you have difficulties or challenges or stress or insecurity in a relationship, you might regress to that earlier stage and you, and you, and you might start splitting. That's that idea. So the idea is, is that the child splits the parent into two different people and the child needs to do this to protect the good from the bad. So when the child arrives at the playground, the child is looking at the mother and saying, you are all good and the world is all bad. You are my only refuge and the rest of the world is a terrible, terrible place. And then the child goes out into the world and is now doing good things and enjoys himself. The mother comes over, tries to do something that the child doesn't want to do, and the child cannot integrate the good with the bad at that phase of development. They can't see mother as a well-rounded, holistic person with good and bad qualities, with frustrating behaviors and satiating behaviors. So the child needs to split the parent into two different people, essentially. There's the good mother and there's the bad mother. Melanie Klein called it the good breast and the bad breast. And whenever we use terminology like that, people get turned off. So I just say good mother, bad mother. And so when mother is good, which is most of the time, hopefully, then you see mother is good. But when mother is bad, oh boy, mother is bad. This is the bad mother, the, the mother that makes me go to bed early, the mother that drags me away from playgrounds. This is the bad mother. And when the bad mother is experienced by the child, they see the mother as 100% bad. They can't remember just 15 minutes ago when the mother was all good. And that's normal. And again, for most parents, 
they just roll with it because and they they try to have their own self-esteem outside of approval from their children that will get them through those difficult times. Well, if you have challenges during that developmental phase, then you're going to be stuck to some extent in that developmental phase and that's what I believe that client was doing with me. Was other times, most of the time, I was the all good therapist. I was perfect. And I felt that way. I felt as though I was a wonderful therapist around her at first. And this is very indicative of clients with borderline personalities. Now, we can call it a borderline personality disorder or whatever, but I'm just going to call it borderline tendencies or whatever. And incidentally, I love working with people with borderline tendencies. A lot of therapists hate it. And some therapists even think it's worthless to work with people with borderline tendencies or personalities. But I think that that's not true. So, um, so with this client, because she was abandoned and stressed out as a, as a young child at that age, she wasn't given the proper nurturing and guidance through that phase to graduate to the next phase. And so she's still stuck there. And so when I was a good therapist, I was a good therapist. But when she was triggered and hurt by something I did or something that was happening in the relationship, instead of seeing me as a whole person, someone that can be both satiating and at times frustrating, instead of seeing me in that holistic way, she saw me as a all bad person. It shifted to that split, that other, that there was the all bad Kirk and the all good Kirk. And as soon as there was a little bit of bad, then she, she could only go into that mode of seeing me as all bad. And when you're all bad, you're all bad. You're evil. You're abandoning. You're a terrible person. All my problems are because of you. <laughs> and that's the way she made me feel, and she attacked me. So she didn't attack me because she was trying to make me feel bad. She attacked me because she felt justified. She attacked me because in that moment, she felt as though I had completely ruined her life. That's how it felt to her. And because that's how it felt to her, that's why she lashed out. People who work with borderline people often will say, oh, that client, she's so terrible, or he's so terrible. He's such a, you know, abusive, terrible, overreactive person. And what I tell people uh, to help them work with people with these sorts of personalities is they're acting rationally out of a misperception of what's happening. They feel as though they're being abandoned. They feel as though they're being betrayed in a very severe way. If someone abandons you or betrays you, you know, say your best friend comes over to your house and kills your cat on purpose or your dog. Just imagine that. Just imagine what you would do if that happened. You wouldn't care that they were your best friend. They came over to your house and killed your pet. The next time you saw them, you would not just interact with them normally. You would go crazy on them, and you might never want to be with them again. You might say, you're done. We're done. Well, when it comes to people who are stuck in this developmental phase, they will feel that way. They will feel betrayed and horrible, even though to the other people on the outside, they don't feel that that's justified. So because these people because of the way that these people's personalities are structured it it creates a tremendous amount of interpersonal suffering for them and then they lash out because they feel so terrible so it derives from a feeling 
it doesn't derive from a need to hurt other people, which is the way some people see borderline people. Okay, I hope that made sense to you because I haven't explained that very often. It's just kind of rattling around in my head. So let me know if that made any sense to you. Another defense mechanism employed by her in all likelihood was regression, as I it's related to splitting, but I think you understand. So she regressed to the age of two where you see people as all good or all bad. She also was utilizing the defense mechanism of displacement in all likelihood. Again, similar to transference, she had a deep anger toward her parents and she was displacing or transferring that anger from her parents onto me. Another defense mechanism that she might have been utilizing was reaction formation. It's when we turn something into its opposite to cope with it, to make it less threatening. She might have become overwhelmed with her dependency on me and her attachment to me. So she defended against that anxiety by turning her attachment needs and her needs to be close into a need to distance from me. You'll see this sometimes with people. When they're afraid of a particular feeling, they might turn it into its opposite. Another defense mechanism is acting out. And acting out is is misused a lot of times. But in the psychodynamic world, it refers to client behavior that is an expression of transference that the client does not feel comfortable yet to express functionally. So in other words, uh, you know, she was feeling a, uh, a lot of anger and hurt transference from her parents. So I did something in, in the session that triggered her trauma regarding her parents. And uh, a functional expression would be to say like, oh, what you said right there, I don't know, it really hurt my feelings and kind of reminds me of my the way my parents would hurt my feelings. And I don't know, could you apologize for that? Cause, or could you not do that again? That would be a more functional way of of reacting, right? Well, when you have a internal difficulty and the trauma is so severe, it it's difficult to to express your feelings in a functional way, and so some people might turn to acting out, which is to become which is what she did by becoming very aggressive with me and putting me down and making me feel terrible. So she acted it out instead of discussed it more functionally. In other words, at that point in therapy, she didn't feel safe enough to talk about those feelings without just acting them out in a self-destructive manner. Okay, so we looked at analyzing her, and that was step five. Step one was assessing the moment. Step two, my emotional reaction or my countertransference. Step three, how did I react? Step four, my self-analysis. Step five, my analysis of the client. And step six, my plan for subsequent sessions. So now that I've assessed everything, what's my plan? Now that I seem to have a good understanding uh, from a lot of different angles of her and me and the situation and what happened, uh, what's my plan? What am I going to do about it? Well, the first thing that all therapists need to address when it comes to stuff like this is anxiety management, uh, the ability to cope and minimize and cope with and minimize their anxiety. So emotional regulation, this sort of stuff. So things that I did is I, I rededicated myself to managing my anxiety intercessions. At the beginning, I felt kind of anxious working with her, but that started to subside, and then it emerged again. And so I reminded myself, look, I have to be on my toes with her because she might do things like this, and so I need to uh, be ready for it. 
when she arrived, I took deep breaths before the session. You know, I said, okay, she's going to be a challenge, she, or maybe I'll trigger her and she'll lay into me or something, so I need to relax myself before the session even begins. I checked in with my body during the session. What's my body feeling like? Am I tense? What are my shoulders doing? You know, am I sitting comfortably? Am I tense? I tried to take care of myself in general, sleep habits, dieting, exercise, this sort of thing. And I managed my anxiety through self-talk in sessions with her when she would go into the all bad therapist mode. I would remind myself that it's her issues. It's not mine. And I reminded myself that I'm a good enough therapist and I'm, and I'm trying the best that I can and I can only do my best. And if she hates me, then that's, I guess, what's just going to happen. And instead of having my entire self-esteem ride on her approval of me, I just said, look, I'm going to do the best I can. And, and maybe I'm not a perfect therapist. Maybe I do make mistakes. And maybe some clients are going to receive me in a bad way. And I just need to be okay with that. And so all those kinds of self-talk state statements to counter the automatic thoughts that occur in those moments were things that I was doing to manage my anxiety. Other things is to get in touch with empathy. Whenever we have issues with countertransference, one of the best things you can do is try to access your compassion and empathy for the client. One of, one of the common destructive results of difficult moments and of countertransference is the loss of empathy and compassion for the client, which is a key component to helping clients. Regardless of what you do, regardless of the type of therapy you provide for the most part, empathy will make everything better. And for, for some kinds of therapies, empathy is the only thing you do. Compassion and empathy is the only thing you provide the, the client and that helps them. I can't tell you how many times, it's actually kind of a joke among my students and my interns that I work with, that I'm always pushing them for to be more empathic and more compassionate and to exhibit it in their sessions. When I listen to their audio of their sessions, I'm always looking for moments where there's clear compassion for the client. And what, what some novice therapists will say to me, and they say, well, I'm just listening, and I'm just providing empathy. And I just want to pull my hair out <laughs> because that's bread and butter therapy is empathy and compassion and listening. We've, we've become such a cognitive behavioral field that devalues empathy and compassion and, and values skill building and tools, which are all great. Skill building and tools are awesome, and cognitive behavioral therapy is awesome. But empathy is awesomer. <laughs> I mean, think about when I think about myself, and I always ask this of my interns and students, I say, when you are suffering, when you have had a bad day, and when you feel terrible, what do you want from someone who's listening to you? Do you want them to start going over tools? Do you want, do you want them to challenge the way that you're thinking? Or do you want them to listen with compassion and really understand you? Phenomenology, this sort of stuff. And so when it comes to this moment, my plan was after that moment in next sessions was to make sure that I got back in touch with my compassion for her and my empathy. And 
contemporary psychodynamic therapists are big on empathy. The other thing is, and this is perhaps the most important thing that I did, was what psychodynamic therapists call a corrective emotional experience or just corrective experiences. The original meaning of this uh, was narrow, but the, the more general meaning of corrective emotional experiences uh, is when we as therapists provide experiences in therapy, actual relational experiences with us in the therapeutic relationship that are corrective for previous traumas. So because this woman had been abandoned and hurt by her parents, and she internalized that, when she recreates that through, project, through projective identification, when she reenacts that difficulty with me, it's a corrective experience for me not to abandon her. When she creates conditions under which most people will abandon her, because if I wasn't her therapist, if I was just her friend or something, and she started slamming me over something I didn't feel like I did wrong, then I might not want to hang out with her anymore. And that's just what she would do to other people. She would do this behavior. This was a relational theme, which is what psychodynamic therapists are interested in, is relationship themes. And a relationship theme of hers was to become very attached to someone. And then as it became deeper, she would do something or a series of things that would push the other person away through her criticalness or you know, judgment or unreasonable hurt feelings, this sort of thing. And so when she recreates that relationship theme with me as a therapist, I have the responsibility to be therapeutic for her. And that is in the psychodynamic world anyway, in, in the world that I, the, the section of psychodynamic therapy that I adhere to is to provide that corrective experience. So she induces me to feel urges to abandon her, but I turn it around and instead become compassionate and even more accepting of her. And that's, that's a very tricky thing, and it's the art of therapy, and there's no real way I could explain how I did that. But essentially, it's turning inward to myself and finding my heart, my compassion, my warmth for human beings and for her. And if I'm in touch with that, then that will become apparent to her. And repeatedly, she would do this in therapy with me over years. She would recreate this situation where she would see me as abandoning and she would see me as the all bad person. And I would react with compassion or at the very least with stability and non-abandonment. And in, in essence, we're going back to that developmental stage of when she was two and allowing her to move on to subsequent phases. I'm giving her the stable environment uh, so that she can resolve that stage, so to speak. And although stage developmental talk is a little passe, uh, I hope you understand what I'm saying. So again, my plan in general was to manage my anxiety, manage my countertransference through various different self-talk and self-care and checking in with my body and deep breaths and relaxation exercises. I was also... Uh, intent on getting in touch with my empathy and compassion that was partially lost due to the difficult moment that we had. And then I was going to provide corrective emotional experiences for her, particularly when she recreated the abandoning other, abandoned self dyad. Okay, so that was my plan. 
And that was step number six. And step number seven, the final step is to monitor the outcome. And again, this is another step that a lot of therapists don't formalize. They don't, I think all therapists basically do this, but a lot of therapists don't formally do it. Whenever you do anything as a therapist, you should monitor its outcome. You should monitor, did that work or not? And you should have some criteria to evaluate whether or not what you did worked. And you should adjust accordingly if things don't seem to work. And again, all ther- most therapists, in my experience, think this way, at least unconsciously. But I think it's good to also try to make it conscious. Now, it's a squishy world, therapy. It's a very difficult thing to figure out whether or not something's working or not. But that's part of the art and the wisdom of, of being a therapist, and you just have to figure that out for yourself. But from my memory, things went well after that moment. Although we did have a number of bumps along the way, and she would, she would occasionally become angry and rejecting of me, but I was mostly prepared for it from that point forward. So incidentally, I treated her for a long time. The moment I described was the first difficult moment I had with her, but I had many, many more. And I really liked working with her because I had a good conceptualization of what was happening in that when she would challenge me and when she would insult me or hurt my feelings, I saw it as uh, evidence that the therapy was actually working. And I saw it as an opportunity to provide her with a corrective emotional experience of not reacting negatively to it and of accepting her and of accepting her feelings. She would say, you hurt my feelings. I can't believe that you did that to me. And I would say, I'm so sorry. Even though in my mind I'm thinking, I didn't do anything wrong. But that's beside the point. The point is, is that she's giving me an opportunity to be corrective for her. And her parents did not accept her statements like that. She would say to her parents, I can't believe you did this to me. And her parents would just further abuse her or abandon her. And so she was giving me an opportunity to be corrective. And I tried to do that for her. And she stuck around in therapy for a number of years. And then fast forward, you know, five, 10 years later, I'm rummaging through some old files, organizing old files. And I come across her file. And in her file was this letter that she wrote to me. And I thought, oh, I'll read this. And I, and I read it and it touched me so deeply that I decided to frame it and put it on my wall as a reminder of the reason why I became a therapist. Uh, I won't read it. It's, I can see it from where I'm sitting right here, but I won't read it because it's you know perhaps too personal. But essentially what she was saying was she was thanking me for being there for her and for doing exactly what I was telling you, which is being empathic and compassionate through very difficult times for her and being uh, an effective therapist in that it helped her to move forward. You know, incidentally, by, by the end of treatment with her, she, one of the things that she really wanted to do was to be able to trust other people. That was a major focus of the therapy. And she was able to trust people more after the therapy that we had. And she, she wanted to trust romantic partners in particular. And she was able to do that. And she was able to cultivate new relationships with people. 
and men in particular, or a man in particular, I should say. And so she, she talks about this all in the letter, and it's a lot more concise than the way I'm describing it. But, but I framed it because I, it, it, it embodies so many different things to me. It, it not only embodies why I wanted to become a therapist, but it also embodies the struggle of being a therapist, that it's not all fun and games, and that it's hard work. Like anything good in life, it requires hard work. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thank you so much, patrons out there. If you're listening to this, then you are a patron, and we love you so much for becoming a patron of the podcast. Let me know what else you'd like me to talk about, especially in these exclusive episodes that are just for you. Let me know. I think I'm going to have these exclusive episodes be sort of like this, you know, episodes that require more prep time for me. This episode took me a lot of prep time. Uh, so I, I want to provide that service to you. And so let me know other kinds of meaty things you'd like me to talk about or, you know, frivolous things, whatever. I am at your disposal. So please take care of yourself out there. And you know why. It's because you deserve it. Thank you.